When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 21, Going Dutch. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to welcome new patrons to the House of Lords. Glenn, Earl Hoffman, Earl Scott, and George Baron Armistead. The new Earls have access to the bonus content, and all patrons get their own premium RSS feeds that let them listen to the podcast without ads. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw the end of Prince Rupert's naval war with the Commonwealth of England. The German prince, cousin to Charles II, had spent five years at sea, seizing ships, raiding coasts, and generally keeping the flame of the Stuart cause alive. It was a hard five years, and he returned to France in 1653 to a frosty reception from, frankly, ungrateful relatives, who just wanted to know how much treasure he was bringing them. Snuffed out in the hurricane which killed his brother, Rupert's opposition was the last ember of resistance to the Republic. The three kingdoms had been conquered. The smaller islands of Britain and Ireland had been pacified. The colonies had been reduced to Commonwealth authority. For the first time in, what, 12 years? 14? There wasn't some kind of civil war or rebellion in the former domains of the Stuart monarchy. But by the time Rupert limped into Nantes in 1653, the Commonwealth was already locked into an external conflict. The Commonwealth had built up a formidable military machine on land and sea. The army would remain the priority of Westminster, for political reasons as much as for security, but the navy received its share of attention too. In 1652, the Commonwealth voted to spend £535,000 on the navy, which was a lot, although that didn't include the £237,000 of debt, and the army was allocated £1.3 million. But still, it was a vast sum. This funding allowed the state's navy to operate a main fleet of 10,000 sailors in addition to multiple convoys. The state's navy was very busy. Along with the pursuit of Rupert and the suppression of rebellious colonies, there was an undeclared war with France. 
partly down to the Bourbon family ties with the exiled Stuarts, partly due to ordinary geopolitics. This war mostly involved the capture of each side's merchant shipping, which had prompted the formation of the convoy system in the first place. But the war had climaxed with the capture of Dunkirk in 1652. A theatre of the Franco-Spanish War, which had begun during the Thirty Years' War but hadn't ended with a general peace, the French port of Dunkirk was besieged by forces from the Spanish Netherlands. Dunkirk's French garrison was desperately in need of supply, and relief ships were en route. And then, Admiral Robert Blake of the States Navy intercepted it with a fleet of -of state-of-the-art warships and destroyed it. A note was sent from London to Paris, explaining that Blake's intervention was merely a reprisal for early affronts by the French. Dunkirk had been a key base for privateers against English trade as well. Dunkirk soon surrendered to the Spanish, and its loss was a blow to Cardinal Mazarin. France recognised the English Republic, and the undeclared war came to an undeclared end. Just as with Blake's blockade of Lisbon, the Commonwealth's navy had forced its continental neighbours to acknowledge the new regime. One of those neighbours had very quickly acknowledged the Republic. The fellow Protestant, fellow Republic, United Provinces of the Netherlands. Coinciding with the 1648 Peace of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War, the Peace of Munster ended the Eighty Years' War between the Spanish Empire and the United Provinces of the Netherlands. Unlike previous truces, some of which lasted for several years, this was the first time that Spain had formally acknowledged the independence of the Netherlands. Ties between the Netherlands, England and Scotland had always been strong, if not always friendly. Besides their shared Protestantism, although not shared doctrine, the three countries had long-standing trade links across the North Sea. If you recall, it had been proposed that Scotland, England and the Netherlands unite into a reformed federal union, under the shared ideals of the Solemn League and Covenant. Now, these proposals hadn't really gone anywhere during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, but in 1650 and 1651, the hopes of a union between the two republics were revived. In part, they came about from the sudden death of William II, Prince of Orange. Now, without getting too much into the weeds about the constitution of the United Provinces, William, or Willem, was the stadtholder, steward, of several of the provinces which made up the United Provinces. Governing in conjunction with the States-General of the Netherlands, the Stadtholder was the de facto head of state. The Stadtholder was not officially a hereditary position, because the states, assemblies of each province, elected their own Stadtholder. But throughout the Eighty Years' War, the Stadtholders of most provinces had usually been bestowed on a single person, and that person was usually a prince of the House of Orange. William the Silent, then his brother and military genius Maurice, then Willem the Silent's son, Frederick Henry. When Frederick Henry died in 1647, his son, Willem, became Prince of Orange and inherited, slash was elected, Stadtholder of the provinces of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Gelders, Oviesel and Groningen. Willem was married to Mary Stuart, Charles I's eldest daughter, and so he was naturally outraged when the English executed his father-in-law. So it was somewhat convenient for the new English Republic when Willem II caught smallpox and died at the age of 24, just three years after becoming Stadtholder. His heir wasn't even born yet. The future William III 
was born a week after his father died, and this came at a very tenuous constitutional moment in the United Provinces. In the wake of the Peace of Munster, the States General and the Stadtholder were in conflict. Willem II opposed the Peace of Munster because it left the Southern Netherlands in Spanish hands. The States General was also pushing for a reduction in the size of the army, now that the fighting was over, ostensibly on account of its cost, but also because it would reduce the power of the Stadtholder. The Stadtholder was the commander-in-chief of both the army and navy, captain-general and admiral-general both, and he didn't want to have his power reduced. The States-General was also increasing its own power. In the Peace of Munster, the United Provinces annexed the Generality Lands, named as such because they were administered directly by the States-General. The conflict between the Stadtholder and the States-General looked to be won by Willem, who had several opponents arrested and his army intimidated Amsterdam into purging his others. And then, at the moment of his triumph, Willem caught smallpox and died. With Willem's death, and with the next Prince of Orange unable to assume the Stadtholdership on account of, firstly, not being born, and secondly, needing a regency after he was born, a constitutional coup took place. Provincial states, which now had a vacant stadtholdership, such as Holland, didn't immediately elect the baby Willem to the position, and instead reserved his powers to themselves. The constitutional crisis had hardened the opinion of statists, supporters of greater power for the states general, and their suspicions of the Orangists, supporters of the office of stadtholder under the House of Orange. The danger posed by an overmighty executive had just been made very clear and any regency of the young Prince of Orange would include figures who had been heavily involved in Willem's successful coup. A great assembly was held in 1651, and though there were provinces like Friesland which pushed for a new stadtholder to be appointed, the office was left indefinitely vacant. Not abolished, but for the next 21 years, the United Provinces of the Netherlands had no overall stadtholder. The States-General also formally acknowledged the Commonwealth as a legitimate government. This is all to say that there were hopes in London that with the House of Orange out of power and the Dutch Republic looking increasingly Republican, the idea of union could be revived. With this hope in mind, the Council of State sent Oliver St. John and Walter Strickland as their ambassadors to The Hague. The most immediate aim of their mission was to secure positive relations with the Dutch mostly so they'd stop supplying royalist forces in Scotland and stop supporting the exiled Stuarts. If the mission went exceptionally well and a union could be agreed, one that bound the English and the Dutch together in religious, republican and commercial unity, then the sky was the limit. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. 
so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Dutch were a powerful naval force, with an expansive trade empire in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, and they built most of that during the Eighty Years' War. With the 1648 Peace of Munster, which coincided with the Peace of Westphalia, the Spanish Empire had finally acknowledged that the Netherlands were out of their control. The return of peace, mostly peace, the Dutch would remain at war with Portugal, meant that the Dutch were able to focus even more on their maritime trade than they already were. In Europe, the Dutch carrying trade, shipping goods between European nations, was an immensely valuable industry in its own right. With the return of a general peace, ignoring their war with Portugal and the war between France and Spain, the seas were safer. The Dutch carrying trade was therefore mostly run with small, lightly armed, cheaply made, and cheaply crewed ships, which all allowed the ship's owners to undercut their competitors. Competitors like the English. Beyond Europe, the Netherlands had outposts and colonies stretching from the eastern seaboard of North America, perhaps most famously New Amsterdam, the future New York, to the island of Formosa, modern-day Taiwan, and an artificial island in Nagasaki, Japan. The Dutch Empire was particularly large in Malaya and Molucca, and had grown extremely profitable from their dominance of the spice trade. There were trading stations and colonies scattered in between, providing valuable goods as well as security and supplies for the merchant fleets. By 1650, the Dutch colonial empire had overtaken the Portuguese. In fact, in several places, the Dutch had seized Portuguese colonial holdings or usurped the trading rights of their Iberian competitors from local rulers. All this maritime activity had government backing. The financial systems of the Netherlands, the banks, the insurance companies, were some of the most advanced in the world. The States General made favourable deals with other powers, such as Denmark. In 1649, Dutch ships received a discount on the sound tolls, which ships had to pay as they entered or exited the Baltic Sea. By 1650, this discount, and the general peace, had already vastly increased the number of Dutch merchant ships in the Baltic. Nicholas Roger states that in 1649, there had been 13 Dutch ships sailing in the Baltic for every English vessel. In 1650, that ratio had skyrocketed to 50 to 1. That was why the Navigation Act of 1651 was so damaging to Anglo-Dutch relations. At a stroke, 
the Dutch carrying trade to England was deemed illegal. Merchants could only ship their goods in English bottoms, who were misses, and any ship caught breaking the act would be seized, along with all goods aboard. I overstated the case last week when I said that if you were an English merchant, you benefited from the Navigation Act. Roger has pointed out that this was an enormous benefit for English shipbuilders and owners, who can now expect much more business because the English merchant fleet had to expand to make the Navigation Act feasible. It also helped merchants who were in the carrying trade, especially the carrying trade to the colonies. But it was actually a detriment to many English exporters and importers, who were now prevented from cutting their costs by using cheaper Dutch bottoms. It's getting a bit carry-on Cromwell now, isn't it? He highlights a divide within the English merchant community. Those who prioritised trade with English colonies were incensed by Dutch interlopers, and many of these merchants were associated with, or actively involved, in the naval administration and the building of ships. They were in government, they had influence, and it was they who pushed for the Navigation Act. Roger also argues that the Dutch were a bit annoyed by the Navigation Act, but that trade with the Commonwealth was of, quote, relatively little importance to the Dutch, end quote. Rivalry in economics and trade has usually been used to explain the growing tensions between the English and the Dutch, but Roger and others emphasise that there were other factors as strong, or stronger, to explain the hostilities. That said, the repeated seizure of Dutch vessels and goods, most famously at Barbados by the state's navy, but many more times between 1650 and 1652, were constant wounds to Dutch pride. Regardless of the relative importance of English trade to the Dutch, each seizure fanned outrage in the Netherlands' trading communities, and it could only be ignored for so long. Back to the diplomatic mission of Sungen and Strickland. To sum it up, it didn't go very well. For starters, The Hague was still the home of Princess Mary, and there were many people in the city who despised the English Republicans. During their stay, the English ambassadors were regularly made aware of just how hostile many of their hosts were. There was at least one attempted assassination of Sinjin. An earlier parliamentarian envoy, Dr. Dorislaus, had already been murdered in 1649 in response to the regicide. When the Commonwealth representatives left their lodgings, they needed an armed escort for their own protection. Anti-Commonwealth feeling was sincere, but exiled royalists were quite prepared to fan the flames of this sentiment with some well-placed cash. For their part, the continued reluctance on the part of the Dutch to expel a dynasty which God had clearly forsaken began to turn English independent opinion against them. The Orangists, members and supporters of the House of Orange, were sidelined in this new, stadtholderless Netherlands, but they weren't gone, and they remained dominant in the more landlocked provinces. More conservative and backers of the ties between Orange and Stuart, the Orangists were depicted in the English press as supporting absolutism in both the Netherlands and, through a Stuart restoration, in the Commonwealth. The English press was confused about the Dutch. Because of their surface similarities, they were both naval countries, they were both Protestant, they were both republics. The different priorities of the Dutch incensed the English. Why were these supposedly godly people who treasured liberty providing shelter to tyrants. As Barry Coward puts it, quote, Dutch support for the House of Orange drove some English Republicans not only to fear the Dutch as a potential threat to English security, 
but also to hate them. As a nation that had reneged on the godly cause of Protestantism and Republicanism, and had gone over to the anti-Christian forces of heresy and absolutism. Many English were also confused why the Dutch were being so reluctant to join another godly republic. It's hard to understate the strength of conviction that some key decision-makers in London had, that of course the Dutch would love a union between the Commonwealth and the United Provinces. It doesn't seem to have really struck fervent English republicans that the Dutch who had just finished an 80-year war for their independence, might not want to immediately trade that away for a union. Even if that union was fully equal, and that was far from a given, it would still require sacrificing parts of their sovereignty. To English Republicans, it was like comparing apples to oranges. The Dutch had just escaped the clutches of a tyrannical Catholic despotism. They were being offered a blessed union of liberty and Protestantism. When the Dutch resisted these overtures, the only reasonable explanation was that they were simply too greedy for earthly wealth. They had turned their backs on liberty and were apostates. Add to this long-standing material grievances, the dominance of Dutch trade, and historical tensions, such as the Amboina massacre, and you have a recipe for conflict. But Alan McInnes has argued that despite the difficulties, St. John and Strickland had made good headway in The Hague, After they left in June 1651, Dutch representatives travelled to London to continue the discussion. In his words, quote, A commercial treaty, underpinned by a common Protestantism, appeared to be on the brink of conclusion by April 1652, end quote. Unfortunately, that was not to be. Whether or not the hostility between the two nations would have been smothered by a successful treaty, the North Sea was a tinderbox by spring 1652. All it needed was a spark, and that spark came in May. England had long claimed sovereignty over the seas, and when travelling in English territorial waters, it was demanded that foreign ships strike their colours as a mark of respect to passing English vessels. A Dutch convoy, under the protection of Admiral Martin Tromp, was sailing through the English Channel, when it passed a fleet of English warships under Robert Blake but the diplomatic relationship between the Commonwealth and the United Provinces was almost completely frayed. In a tense standoff, both sides prepared to fight, and when Trump was slow to strike his colours, Blake opened fire. Next week, we will pick up that thread, as the First Anglo-Dutch War begins. If you haven't already completed the survey and you'd like to have your say, a link is in the description. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite, Mike Sanders. Damien, Duke of Portland, Nicholas Dean, Marquis of Berkeley, and the Earl Talbot, Tom Cozens. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, such as Redacted History, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. 
it can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.